So welcome to the Sausage of Science. I'm Chris, and that's Kara, the other voice. Hello, everybody. Kara, do you want to tell us who we're talking to today? Yeah, so we're talking to Courtney Meehan, who uh, just had a fairly recent publication come out called Social Networks, Cooperative Breeding, and the Human Milk Microbiome, which I think is one of these really cool things because microbiome has been a huge hot topic and lactation has been a huge hot topic. And then of course, social networks, and you just managed to combine them all into this lovely little package, which we'll dig into at some point during this interview. But I want to start off more casual. How was your summer? Uh, my summer was good. It was actually relaxing. Uh, and so it was it was great. I took some vacation time, which has been rare in the last, I don't know, 10 years and did a lot of work, but also relaxed a little bit. So it was a good summer. Did you travel somewhere fun for that vacation? Well, my husband and I often combine work and vacation time. So we had a conferences, both of us, I had a conference in Boston and he had one in Toronto. So we kind of bookended our vacation with those conferences, but we went back east for a bit, so. Nice. Did you have any good, sorry, go ahead, Chris. You said back east, is that where you're from? Oh, originally, but a long time ago. I grew up half in Connecticut and then half in Los Angeles, so. Did you have any good fun summer reads you want to share with us? Anything not necessarily academic? Do you have a good summer book? Oh, well, I spent most of my summer reading uh, academic papers, but, and I also, spent, my son and I read together all the time, so I also spent much of my summer uh, reading uh, young adult fantasy novels, but uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know, I'm not sure I want to say I have a favorite on those, I'll get in trouble, but. <laughs> <laughs> is he at an age for Harry Potter yet? I don't know. How oh, he has that. done all that, oh, okay. and so now we're moving into all the new areas, uh, or trying to find different things. Exciting, exciting. You know, it's rare that we get summers that are a little bit more relaxing or a little bit more focused on this and that. So when they do come along, it makes getting back into the semester so much harder. <laughs> you know, no, actually, I'm, I was ready. I've been uh, I've been in the field so much over the last decade that it was a nice break, but it also gets me really excited to get back into it. I want to uh, highlight the young adult fantasy <laughs> piece of that because I was just listening to a podcast. When was it? Well, I'm blanking out on who it was. They all run together. But it was an interview with N.K. Jemison, who's won like tons and tons of awards for her fantasy and science fiction. And it was a podcast about world building. And the description of world building and her the depth of her reading is very anthropological. She reads a lot of anthropology, a lot of nonfiction. And I know a lot of anthropologists who read fantasy and science fiction. And mm-hmm. you know, I always wondered if Ursula Le Guin's work was based on her father, what's her father, Krober? And, and just anthropology being important to some of the better articulations of that stuff. So I just want to just throw that out there like, yay, good on you and your child. <laughs> yeah, we could possibly even post a link to that podcast <laughs> in the notes for this podcast. Anyway, so uh, one thing we always like to do with uh, the people we have on the show is kind of find out how they came to anthropology. What was your journey and your origin story to get you to where you are today to become an anthropologist? I love that question because I think some of it was chance. I think my first anthropology class I took was just on uh, the recommendation of my sister who was a few years older than me and I took it and immediately 
kind of fell in love with it. And it turned out that my advisor as an undergraduate had actually been who ended up being my chair, Barry Hewlett. It was Barry Hewlett's master's advisor was Arthur Lehman. And so I started throughout my undergraduate career. I worked with art and he just encouraged me to go to graduate school and to pursue this. And he reached out to me even after I finished college to kind of continue to encourage me to go to graduate school and connected me with Barry. And I ended up working with Barry for my PhD. And Art uh, had worked in the Central African Republic with Barry. And so it just was a, a small world that kind of came together, but it reminds me a lot of what kind of impact we can have on our students. And I always keep kind of my origin story in mind when I work with undergraduates because he had a tremendous impact on me. Do you tell them that story? Uh, I do usually tell them that story. And he had called me after I finished school and just to encourage me to continue to think about going back to graduate school and, and had offered opportunities or had mentored me in the possibilities to start doing field work as an undergraduate. And so I try to I try to work to make sure that the undergraduates who work with me get those opportunities as well because it makes a huge difference in the choices they'll make in the future, whether or not they stay in anthropology or move on to something else. First time that we've discussed undergraduate mentors on this show. I believe the interview with Malika we talked a good deal about how we both had the same undergraduate mentor that really encouraged us. And, and it's hugely important to give them that support early on. Yeah, I agree. I like not only the encouragement, but reaching out to you afterward. And I had a mentor do the same thing that basically kept poking me and encouraging me to consider grad school. And that was really validating and had a, had a lot of impact on me as well. So yeah, no, that's great. So let's talk about this article. You want to tell us a little bit about your field site in the Central African Republic and, you know, the people you work with there and kind of what your main research focus is in that location. Sure. So I have uh, worked in the Central African Republic now for about 18 years now, which is kind of startling to think about. And so I work with the Aka hunter-gatherers and the Ngandu horticulturalists. The Aka are mobile hunter-gatherers who reside in and on the periphery of the Congo Basin rainforest. Um, and Ngandu are horticulturalists who reside on the edge of the rainforest. And so probably for the most of that time, although I've had a bit of a shift in the last eight years, but most of that time, my work has focused on early childhood, human cooperative breathing, social, emotional, and physical development, and has centered on evolutionary life history questions, eternal investment. And then about eight years ago, I shifted slightly to kind of have a broader net and began to focus on human milk composition and uh, infant and maternal microbiomes. And so it's been kind of a process of, you know, shifting gears or I guess broadening the net of what I do. Isn't that one of the beautiful things about anthropology and I guess academia as a whole is that you do get to do that shift and you get to follow those, you know, lines of inquiry that really pique your interest. And I know, I always enjoy that, that we get to do kind of just about anything and enjoy it. 
so with that recent shift, uh, so I, we can't guarantee that all of our listeners are familiar with, you know, lactational biology and immunology. I was wondering if you can kind of give a brief overview of that link between breast milk and the immune system. Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. Um, newborns are, in a sense, uh, immunologically underdeveloped at birth. And so their immune protection it, uh, relies on uh, breast milk. Human milk, we still have a tremendous amount of work to do to understand the complexity of human milk, but we know that it contains nutrients as well as hundreds to thousands of bioactive uh, components that really work in concert with each other. And for the newborn, human milk basically trains the uh, infant's immune system. We know that there are a host of environmental factors that influence the composition or the immunological composition of human milk, you know, whether it be uh, gestational age or birth mode or time postpartum. But we are really beginning to uncover a better understanding now in terms of cross-cultural variation in those immune factors. But broadly, the infant relies on human milk to train its immune system. Yeah, very cool. So there are some things I thought that were really neat in this paper, and one of them is a technical thing because it's very rare. So we'll, of course, have a link up to it in our, our program notes. But you have a section in that paper that's really well laid out that just states the study goals and predictions super clearly. There was no question, you know, in a reader's mind of what it was you wanted to do and what you thought you might find. Uh, and as you said, we have a fair amount of information about how the environment and seasonality, diet, all of these things impact microbiome and human milk microbiome, but you didn't have a prediction for how you know, social networks and contact would affect human milk microbiome because nobody's done it before, at least as far as I can tell. So how did you come up with that idea? Like, Where did that like, light bulb ding and when to look at this particular aspect of the microbiome? Well, I think that's the cooperative breeding researcher part of me. This seemed like a natural progression. I've spent those last 18 years observing infants in a really minute and detailed way and looking at what those early environments look like, how dense they are, how intense they are as well um, with interactions with other caregivers and how much time they spend with others. And so when we started this project, and I should know that this this initial project that this paper is based on really came out of a chance meeting with a colleague, Shelley McGuire. Uh, and Shelley and I met through a shared colleague, and we started talking. And uh, she had, and her lab had recently published one of the first papers with modern methods that looked at the human milk microbiome. And so we began to talk about the possibility to do this work internationally and to look at whether or not we could see cross-cultural variation in the human milk microbiome. And as part of that, it just made sense to, to me and to Shelley to begin to connect the behavioral end of it with the microbiome end. And given what we know about human sociality and the density and intensity of infant caregiving environments through much of the world, this connection was fairly natural. If human milk is 
helping to train the infant for the environment in which they'll be reared, it makes sense that it might be responsive to that environment as well. So that question kind of came out of all those years of studying early infant environments and uh, cooperative breeding among humans. So I have a follow-up question, if you don't mind. It's not on the, the list, but one of the things that in listening to you strikes me is there's a few things to be teased out there that I'm not sure I followed. So in your paper, you talk about microbiome richness and evenness in comparing some of your groups. And I think it was with response or in conjunction with how many different types of caretakers the child was exposed to. So how does the milk microbiome, which is coming from the mother, relate to how many caregivers a child has, which is ostensibly downstream, no? Yeah, so there's a lot of mechanistic questions in there. How does this, might this happen? And we're actually working on some of that right now. And so we don't have all the answers to that, but there is a fabulous paper that shows that during breastfeeding, milk is brought into the infant's mouth and then is basically pushed back into the mammary gland during breastfeeding. And so, so we have the possibility to show how it might move from the infant to the mother there. And then you also asked about the richness and evenness. Did I cover that first part or do you want me to? Yeah, no, that's, that's fascinating. And so then in terms of the richness and evenness, we much of this still also has to be teased apart, but we tend to assume that a more diverse and even milk microbiome is a healthy microbiome. There's not a bloom of one particular taxa. And so there still has to be a lot of work done on that as well, but there is an assumption that the uh, more diverse and even microbiome is a healthier microbiome. Mm -hmm. Nice. Um, so could you maybe walk us through the results from this paper in particular and how those social dynamics impact richness and evenness and what might that mean? Sure. So if we start more broadly, this was actually the first paper to ever look at the human milk microbiome among small-scale societies and particularly a hunter-gatherer society. And on a very broad level, we were interested in doing that because there have been multiple papers published on microbiomes. The vast majority, certainly not all, but the vast majority are done among Western populations. And it's incredibly important that we get a broader sense of what the human milk microbiome in this case might look like to uncover if it even exists a human pattern. The overarching initial result was to simply look at the hunter-gatherer and horticultural human milk microbiomes in these communities and to understand variation from what we know uh, from studies, in, particularly among Western studies. And so we see some differences there. For example, uh, among hunter-gatherer and horticultural women's milk, we see rhizobium, which is a soil bacterium. Not surprisingly, in these different environments, we should see differences in the, in the milk microbiome. We also see broad differences across seasons with certain taxa being more prevalent, dry seasons versus wet seasons. But in terms of the social and behavioral analysis, women's milk whose infants had denser, more aloe mothers, more non-maternal caregivers, and whose infants received more non-maternal care than maternal care, those infants' mothers had more even and diverse milk. 
And uh, we also saw was not statistically significant, but a trend, but that infants who had more maternal care, their milk was richer, but uh, there's still some work to be done to tease that apart as well. That's very cool stuff. So what's kind of the next phase of this project, do you think? Well, uh, the next phase has been underway for several years. Um, Five years ago now, we uh, started an international project to look at human milk composition around the world. And this was done in collaboration with my colleagues, uh, Shelley McGuire, Mark McGuire, Janet Williams, and a host of colleagues literally from around the world. And so we have been studying milk microbiome and infant fecal microbiome in 11 populations in eight countries countries across four continents, probably for the past four or five years now. And those results are just starting to come out. We've published a paper on human milk uh, oligosaccharides and human milk immune factors. And we have uh, multiple papers in the works on variation on human uh, milk microbiome and infant fecal microbiome. And then my graduate student, Avery Lane, is looking at the role of siblings and household composition on the infant fecal microbiome. And we're also looking at the social, behavioral, and environmental influences on the human milk microbiome across all these populations around the world. That's an incredibly complex system and number of variables to get a full picture. It's very impressive. It's been an incredible challenge and tremendous amount of fun over the last couple of years. And it's really just at the beginning too. Uh, We'd like to link some of the stuff that's, that's out on that in our show notes. So Sure, I can send them to you. Perfect. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I have a more sort of a mundane methodological question. So just imagining this research on the ground, obviously, if you've been there for 18 years, you're familiar with the community, they're familiar with you. But in reading this, I was still struck by, not necessarily invasive, but in getting women to express milk. What's that interaction like? How do they respond to it? Yeah, sure. So uh, we've now, uh, I've now done this in the, in the U.S. among the, among the Aka and Migandu. I actually also work in Ethiopia among the Sadama agro-pastoralists too. Not to mention that our colleagues collect milk all around the world. And generally women are excited to, I shouldn't say everyone, but women are generally interested in research on on human milk. I found that simply discussing what we're doing and why that women around the world have been really enthusiastic to participate and to donate samples to get a better understanding of this pretty miraculous substance. It makes sense. My wife thought it was fascinating when she was breastfeeding my kids. Just, I mean, it is, it was. So I can imagine that. Is this done where they are or do they go to a hospital or a clinic or? It depends on where the collections were taking place. So in the Central African Republic, we went to women. When I've worked in Ethiopia, it has worked better for women to come to a clinic. And it really depends on where we have collected milk and what works best for the mom, honestly. Whatever works best for the mom, we're happy to do. Uh, Yeah, this is a great body of work and it's huge important, especially all those complex, like I said, the complex variables that you're trying to draw in to get a full understanding of that picture. So if people want to learn more or get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? I suppose over email, my uh, Washington State University email. There's a lot there. So I encourage folks to look it up. 
because you've been doing this for a long time. The, the references and the depth of your work is extraordinary. So we want to thank you for just probably dipping our toe into the water here today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's how we feel every single day working on this, that uh, we are years into it. And yet every day, I feel like we're just getting started because the <laughs> questions keep expanding and getting bigger and broader and more exciting along the way, too. So that means you're probably always recruiting students and have plenty of work to keep them busy, yeah? Oh my gosh, we have so much work to keep them busy. (laughs) We have uh, multiple openings in the lab right now for interested students and students that are interested in getting interdisciplinary training. I feel that that is incredibly important nowadays. We have, with my colleagues at the University of Idaho, we uh, really strive to offer our graduate students opportunities to get experience in the lab, in the field, really on all levels. Wonderful. Does your lab have its own specific website? I do have a specific website. It's labs.wsu.edu forward slash neon. Right. Great. Thank you. Cool. Well, thank you. We've been the Sausage of Science. I've been Chris. I'm Kara. You can find me at Kara Akabak on Twitter. Oh, and I'm at Chris underscore L-Y. Courtney, thank you so much for being on the show today. Great work, and I'm sure we'll chat to you again soon. Yeah, thank you for having me.